Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this new episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards. Today, I'm looking forward to talking to Andy Erickson, one of the most prolific winemakers in Napa Valley. He's worked with Screaming Eagle, Dolly Valley, Staglin, and many other top wineries, including his own brand, Favia, which he runs with his wife, Annie Favia. It's an incredible story. We have a lot to cover, so off we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer from Napa Valley, California. We've got a uh, special guest today, uh, a guy named Andy Erickson. And I got to tell you, I've known this guy for a long time, but it's always like, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? I didn't really know him. And, uh, and he didn't know me. But then we, uh, in the last year or two, we've been serving together on the uh, board of the Napa Valley Vintners. We've worked together with Premier Napa Valley. I've gotten to know each other. And, uh, you know, I'm Andy. I think we've done some good work together and we've, we've had some fun. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been uh, meaningful. I mean, there's a lot of things happening in the Valley all the time. So it's been great to, uh, to work together and to get to know you a little bit better. And it's been, it's been fun the uh, past couple months. I've been finally listening to your podcasts. And I have to say, it's really cool to listen to some of these of people I thought I knew and they end up getting to know them just on a deeper level. It's pretty fun. Well, that's, and, and that's what we're going to do to you today. So we're going to put you in the hot seat. No, not really. But um, so, but welcome. Thanks for taking the time. We could spend the next hour or so just talking about all the incredible people and properties in the wine business you've worked with. Harlan, Staglin, Screaming Eagle, Dolly Valley, Mayakamas. But before we get to that, I want to go all the way back and find out what was uh, pre-Napa Valley Andy Erickson up to. So where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in the Midwest, but to go way back, uh, I was born in New Jersey, which is great. I have the fame of being uh, born in New Jersey, although I, we lived there for just a couple of months after I was born. My father was finishing his PhD uh, at Rutgers in New Jersey, so he did his postdoctorate work down in La Jolla um, at Scripps. He, he had a PhD in molecular biology, kind of a brainiac guy. And so we moved to Southern California when I was, you know, an infant. Okay. And and just for a few years, then moved to Indiana. And I grew up on a lake in Indiana, very idyllic life, you know, like shoveled a hockey rink in the winter and then water skiing, fishing in the summer. Um, but then my dad, he was a professor at Notre Dame University but was also involved in some early biotech stuff. We moved to Massachusetts when I was in high school and he uh, started a company there. But um, it was funny being from a small town in Indiana. I moved to New England and and outside of Boston and just realized there was a whole world out there, which was pretty cool. I ended up going to Tufts University, which is just outside of Boston. And it's funny, the reason I went there is because in high school, my orthodontist, who I thought was one of the coolest guys I'd ever met, he he lived in Nantucket and he would fly to Framingham, Massachusetts three days a week and have his practice. And I, he told me he went to Tufts. I went home one day and I told my mom, I was like, well, tell me about this Tufts University. Anyway, I ended up going there and <laughs> starting off, uh, starting off pre-med, just thinking that I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but my dad was a science guy. So I kind of grew up in the lab and, uh, got quickly weeded out. You know, you hear about yeah. the weeding out process. Well, that was me. I got weeded out. But I also, uh, it was the 
mid eighties, there was a lot of interesting things going on internationally. I, I played rugby, so I had a bunch of international friends, and I get into all right. I got studying. I, I got to stop you because there's too much. You've you've gone. You've you've covered your young life too fast, man. So you I want to talk about Indiana because <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. I'm a Midwestern boy. I didn't know that about you. So we, that's why. We oh, that's on. right. Yeah. yeah. So my my parents are both from Chicago. Well, Hinsdale, my dad, and my mom from Lagrange no, Park, so no, just outside no. of Chicago. Have we had this chat before? Yeah. No. I grew up in Hinsdale. Oh, you're kidding me. Uh-uh. So my dad, <laughs> my dad uh, is a Hinsdale boy. Yeah. It's, me too. Uh, this is crazy. For 17 so years, and, La- and Lagrange was Lagrange was the next town over. They were the big rival to Hinsdale. Your dad knows that, and so is your mom. Oh yeah, oh, of how course. Funny. Oh my god, this is so funny because you know, listening to these podcasts, uh, <laughs> I've always thought like you know, yeah, there's six degrees of separation, but really in the wine business, there's like two maximum. Oh, well, listen, you and know? you mentioned growing up in Indiana, Elkhart, right? Some small town. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. playing hockey on the lake, that's what we used to do in Hinsdale. There was a, the lake, there was a couple of lakes that froze over in the winter, and we'd go out and shovel them off and play hockey. And uh, Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, oh. So this is so crazy. Cool. This is crazy. So, and then you ended up, um, but you moved to Massachusetts, and how old were you when that happened? Uh, so I was just starting my sophomore year of high school, so that was a big change. And oh. it's funny, I would say that, that's when I learned that hockey was actually a contact sport, <laughs> <laughs> which was pretty hilarious because I, you know, I ended up not making the high school team. We had a pretty serious high school hockey team, but I, I played youth hockey and I wrestled and I, I played tennis, played tennis my whole life. But, um, yeah, just, uh, but high hey, school you, fi- yeah, yeah, but you went, so you went from, uh, I've got another one for you. So you went from a small town high school to a big town high school as a sophomore and what you also don't know about me, God, we can we get this virus out of here so we can go have dinner or lunch? Anyway, yeah. um, I went from a big high school in Hinsdale, 2,500 kids, to St. Helena High, 500 kids when I was a junior in high school. So you yeah, got that's similar. A that's a different kind of change right there. Yeah, mine I think was easier than yours. I bet you yours was tougher. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a struggle at first, but I ended up making friends with a guy from Ohio who was new to town as well, and it was pretty funny. We became great friends. He was on the wrestling team, and he was also a bodybuilder, so it was pretty fun to go <laughs> around with my my buddy Ben. And uh, we ended up having a great time in high school, and and then probably my you know my favorite years from my you know my younger years and my years at Tufts. I still have great friends from those years, and. We keep in touch. We're all over the world, but we still keep in touch and get together once in a while. We actually have, you know, quite a few people from those years in the Bay Area, too. We all moved out here um, uh, in, you know, I graduated in 89. So we ended up moving to San Francisco together. No one was from here. And we had probably a posse of about eight or 10 of us and uh, just getting started, not knowing what we wanted to do. But to back up a little bit. So I did get weeded out of the pre-med thing and I ended up studying political science and international relations. So okay, um, finished that at Tufts and then wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So, uh, but, but funny thing was they have a, so Tufts has a graduate school called the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And okay. if you're kind of a state department type or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's a great school. So I did a summer program in France when I was in, so between my junior and senior years and it's up in the Alps. That's in the Haute-Savoie. It's this beautiful area on Lake Annecy. It's part of the 
Tour de France, you know, that the yeah. grueling Alps right. part. So I lived with a family and just studied at the UN in Geneva part of the week and then just kind of studied art and French and all sorts of fun stuff. And But the family I lived with had this incredible wine cellar. And it wasn't like first growths or, you know, Grand Cru kind of things, but it was village wines and shiners. They had this kind of bunker wine cellar underneath the backyard that had about 3,000 bottles of wine in it, you know, and I was 19 years old. So I was 19 years old. We would go down there and pick out a few bottles and then cook outside and just, you know, eat dinner. And my French got better as the night went on. And uh, (laughs) I just remember coming back from that summer thinking, uh, well, so at that point I wanted to be a diplomat. I had, you know, I had this vision that I would go back to grad school and then do something internationally. But, you know, this was the Reagan year. So everyone, everyone working at the UN sort of felt a little deflated and it just, that part of it wasn't really that fun. But I just remember coming back thinking, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to live like that, you know, thinking of just being outdoors and wine and food. And, and it was amazing. So moving to San Francisco, we would start coming up to Healdsburg or Napa or wherever and, you know, ride our bikes and taste wines. And I just fell in love with the whole idea. And not only that, I I got a job in an advertising agency. So I kind of, I would say that that's what you do when you don't know what you want to (laughs) do. You start doing something like that. I just sort of fell into it. And uh, so at this point you're out of, you're out of college at this point, right? Yeah. So I graduated college and then my first three, four years I was living in San Francisco and And, you know, it was a fun agency. And one of our clients was Hubline, which at that time, you know, they owned uh, BV. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they still owned Christian Brothers. But anyway, my job was I was a media planner. So that's you have a budget of, you know, X million dollars. You're going to spend it all over the you know country promoting whatever brand. And you decide where it's going to be spent. Mm -hmm. So we would come up and have these meetings in Rutherford. And Dick Marr at that time was running the show for them. And we, we'd have these meetings in Rutherford. My eyes would be glazing over looking at these budgets and I'd be looking out the window, just looking at guys, you know, pruning and digging, digging holes. And I just remember thinking like, I could dig a hole. (laughs) You know, I should be out there and, uh, kind of put a bunch of ideas together and decided I was going to, I was going to quit what I was doing and travel through South America, which I had, made some friends down there and and just thought I'll go down there and I'll work in a vineyard and winery. I'll learn Spanish and then I'll come back and see what I can do. So I, I, that's what I did. You're kidding. So it's, you're like how old? 23, four, something like 20, that? 25. Man, that's, so, that's, uh, that's, you know, good for you. That's just crazy. It's like, go, man. You just did it. South America. I mean. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because nobody was going to South America back then. Right except a guy named Paul Hobbs, which is a small part of the story coming up. But um, yeah, it's funny. I I left town and uh, everyone's like, what are you going in the Peace Corps? And I, I called it the Andy Corps. No, <laughs> the I'm Andy going Corps. into the Andy Corps. So you did, you, did, you, did you really have a plan or you were just kind of winging it? No, I was totally winging it. I had, so <laughs> I had, uh, you know, graduating in 89, I had a bunch of friends in San Francisco and we had, so some inner, uh, sort of some interconnected circles of friends. Um, I met Augustin Huneus, so Augustin uh, Francisco Jr. Right. Um, he lived down the street from me, and he was just getting started in the family business. They had put him in charge of 
selling the Chilean wines, right? So, right. you know, we'd be out partying, whatever, and everyone would go back to our apartments. And I remember in Augustine's apartment, he always had the uh, the collateral material spread all over his house, you know, in cases of wine or something like, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just, you know, I got to go on the road and sell this wine. And I yeah. just, I remember later on telling him, hey, I want to get in the wine business. And and he's funny. He'll, he'll, he'll tell you that he... He considers himself the guy that tried to convince me not to go into the wine business <laughs> because he said, well, that sounds fun, but it's a terrible idea, but I'll give you a couple of phone numbers. So I just had a couple of phone numbers of guys in Chile who were winemakers. So, you know, this, there was no email, no cell phones. Sure. I just, I just headed down there. I traveled for about six months. I started in Central America. I made my way all the way through Brazil, mostly by bus or boat or Hey, how, hitchhiking or whatever. I, got, I was with I, one other friend. You know, that time period, I'm interrupting, just, um, yeah, you're 25, you're, you know, rugby player, you're in good shape, all that stuff, but still, wasn't any any dangerous, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were just kind of stupid. I mean, we. <clears throat> when I think of it now, like, so I, I studied <laughs> Spanish in Guatemala for like six weeks, but during that time, they signed the uh, peace treaty in El Salvador, which is right you know, right down the road. Right. So what did we do? We got on a bus and just went to El Salvador to see, you know, there must be a party going on. That was, (laughs) that was our thinking, you know, and we went there and then, uh, uh, ended up flying to, uh, Cartagena, Colombia. And from there making our way down all the way, pretty much to Buenos Aires. And you're traveling only a couple of flights. I mean, it was like, I took a boat through the Amazon for like 10 days how cool. Ended up meeting a bunch of interesting people. And you're by yourself or you're traveling with somebody? No, no. I was with one other friend, female okay. friend. Um, we weren't a couple, but we were really good friends. Yeah. And Let's we good to have talked a about doing something like this for a while. But yeah, I remember uh, crossing the border on a bus between Colombia and Venezuela, which at that time was probably one of the most dangerous parts of the world. And yeah. we were, you know, every couple hours you'd have to get off the bus and spread eagle against the side of the bus and... They'd search everybody for weapons and whatnot, and we just didn't even think anything of it. It's so stupid now that I think about it. I mean, we were like, we got to this point where like we were trying to figure out how little money we could spend in a day. So you'd find a place where you could like hang your hammock for two bucks or whatever, and like <laughs> what were eat you, a bowl what were, of rice and have know, a beer. Even though you're 25, you're out of the house. You know, your parents are still your parents. What would they think about this? Oh, I don't even know. They they had no idea. I mean, it was the kind of thing where you'd. I would write letters on the old like airmail rice paper stuff oh, yeah. and like send them home. And then at each city I got to, I'd go to the American Express office and there'd be some stuff waiting for me. <laughs> letters and whatever, yeah. friends or my parents would send, you know, some money sometimes. But uh, yeah, I mean, very different world, right? You're I mean, dead. it's like my kids now, if we're in constant contact pretty much every day. They're texting or, right. or phones. I mean, I remember <laughs> you talk about growing up going skiing. My girls were on the ski team at Sugar Bowl. And I remember once I dropped off my daughter. That ski team, she didn't have her phone. And I said, well, we'll just meet here at 3.30. And she's like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Like, what if you're not here? I'm like, well, then you just wait. Then you just wait. Right. Like we used to do. Uh, yeah. 
That's anyway, true. So remember, a, yeah. Yeah. I remember being that age. I never talked to my folks. So being in college is like my dad called me once and said, you need to call every Sunday night and talk to your mom. I said, yes, dad. You know, it was kind of like, that was the deal you know, on the, the phone yeah. in the hallway at the dorm. Funny. So funny. All right. So you survived obviously, which was great. But, uh, so after you traveled around, what, then what happened? Well, so we ended up in Buenos Aires, and my, my goal was to make it to Chile and then stay for a year and work in a winery and vineyard and just see what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I get to Buenos Aires, and one of my best friends, he ended up being my best man in my wedding. He lives in uh, BA, and he introduced me to his buddy, Ernesto Catena, who's part of the Catena family, which I had never heard of. And I told him my plan, and he said, basically, you're not going to Chile. That's ridiculous. I'm taking you out to Mendoza going to introduce you to some people and you're going to stay there. So that's what I did. I went out there and ended up uh, meeting Nicolas Catena. That's Ernesto's dad. He's, right. I mean, I would say he's like the Robert Mondavi of, yeah. of Argentina, right? And uh, kind of explained to him my idea of just kind of seeing all facets of what was going on and, you know, didn't really need to be paid, but if they had a place for me to stay, whatever, I'd do that. And they totally hooked me up and I would sort of move around a couple months here pruning and a couple months there working on the bottling line because they have a bunch of properties in Mendoza. And uh, so ended up uh, the most I spent was during the summer. I I basically had 12 acres under my purview, if you will, as a laborer. And I trained a vineyard from two buds to the ground all the way up to two canes on a trellis if i mean if you right. know anything about viticulture that's a thing but i did the whole thing myself 12 acres 12 acres so now, you, wait a minute and you've got no background no training they do so you learned on the job it sounds like yeah i mean the foreman took me out and he said look you got <laughs> you're gonna have these shoots coming up you thin it down to two shoots and you move on and you do that to every vine and then you when you come back they're kind of a foot tall you take one of them you tie it to the Right. Steak, steak and you take everything else off and by the time you're done with that you come back and you you do the next thing, you know, and it's, it's a, like so I think I was there for three months Andy, you laboring did tw- so you every did, day. You did twelve acres by yourself, no help. Uh yeah. I wow. think I'm I'm I don't think I'm exaggerating. And no, I, believe, uh, I believe you. It was a brand new vineyard and uh the guys I lived with during the week, like some of them were the guys that were putting in the stakes, you know, and, right. or the end posts and these guys like they were so into just making sure they were perfectly straight. So their whole day was like putting in the straight end posts, you know, and then they would right. go home to a different town on the weekends. And I was there by myself, just reading and growing my hair long and walking into town to see what was going on. And I can tell you there was nothing going on. This is in a little <laughs> village called Tupungato, which is probably 45 minutes up into the Andes from the city of Mendoza. And at that time that was sort of a, an outpost for wine. I mean, this is when huh. Paul Hobbs was just starting to help these guys out. And he was saying, well, if you want to make really interesting wines, you got to go up to where like you're growing the apples and the cherries and stuff. And so there were orchards all over this area, but Catena was planting these vineyards and uh, beautiful cobbly soils. And you look up behind you and there's the uh, Tupungato volcano that's 22,000 feet up. I mean, wow. it's just a stunning place. And well, you know, and then on the weekends, I would take the bus into Buenos Aires and see my buddies, you know, yeah. take a long weekend and whatnot. But I was there for 10 solid months, just manual labor. And it was pretty, pretty great, soulful. Ex- great experience. Did you ever meet uh, Laura Catena when you were down there? 
You know, I met her after, and yeah. I, I see her fairly often. She's great. She's and, super. Uh, she was on this uh, our podcast a few couple months ago. Yeah, and I haven't we got listened the to that whole one story, all the, the fascinating history. What a what a cool family. The whole family is yeah. just great. And so, meanwhile, everywhere I went down there, people would say, "Oh, you know Paul Hobbs," and I was like, <laughs> "No, I, I have no idea who that guy is." I and everywhere in Mendoza, "Oh, you know Paul Hobbs?" No, don't know Paul Hobbs. But one day on the crush pad. Harvest starts and who shows up but Paul Hobbs, Paul Hobbs. on the crush pad and said, "Oh my God, you're Paul Hobbs!" and uh, ended up connecting with him. And he said, "Hey, you know, when you get back to California, just give me a ring. I'll help you, you know, get set up." And so I, I right. went back and uh, I did the summer program at UC Davis. So you know, harvest in Argentina is in February is, through April. Right. So I got back in the spring. Signed up for this UC Davis OIV course, which okay. is their international uh, sort of wine marketing course. But it gives you a whole overview of the industry. I did that. Hey, well, I, I got to interrupt it, real fast, Danny, because I, I got to had, – had the button been pushed? Was it like, hey, I, I'm doing this. I'm all about wine now. Or were you still kind of – Oh, yeah, sure what to totally. Do? But so, I didn't even exactly know what that meant. You huh. know, I wanted, I wanted to be – I wanted to be in production, but I also had this marketing background, so I just didn't really know exactly okay. where I was going to fit in. But I, um, so I did this Davis course. And funny side note, um, it might have been Paul, but somebody else said, "Oh, you're going to be up in Davis for a couple months. You should call these guys. I think they have a couch you could sleep on." It ended up being <laughs> Hugh Davies and Matt Novak. So I basically <laughs> no, you got to be kidding me. So, Isn't that funny? So Hugh Davies is uh, runs Schramsberg uh, Winery, um, f- great famous sparkling wine producer here in Napa. And then Matt Novak is uh, one of the Novaks in the Novak family that owns Spotswood Winery here in St. Helena. So how funny. Yeah, and it's, you know, I I can't say I really got to know them well. I mean, I was, I was doing a summer program. I don't even know what they were doing, but I didn't see them that often. But it was just a funny yeah. connection. But I did that program then... Uh, Paul helped me get a job, a harvest job at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. So Harvest 1994, I did two harvests, one in Argentina, and then I, you know, showed up in Napa and did a, a harvest at uh, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and that was, that was a great introduction to the valley. You know, I, you bet. I, a lot of people have gone through there. I got to know Warren fairly well. They were sort of in between winemakers at that time. Um, and I can't remember who the previous winemaker was, but Paul was consulting for them. So anyway, I was just an intern. So intern Harvest 1994, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars. And, um, you know, I got to meet Warren, very interesting guy. I would be the guy on Sundays doing pump overs. And the right. only other person in the winery was Warren tasting the tanks. And so that was pretty interesting. And then um, that that was a great experience, but then that ends pretty quickly, you know, if you're just a harvest intern. Right. So couple, then couple months, yeah. I got very lucky that someone said, uh, oh, you should go up to Newton Vineyards and talk to the winemaker there, John Consgard. He has one of his, you know, cellar guys is going back to Europe. So I had never heard of John or Newton Vineyard or anything, but I called and arranged an interview. I drove up there and, uh, met with John and I'm sure you know John. I mean, John's the yep. ultimate Renaissance man. I mean, what an incredible guy. I mean, he's just, 
Well, they're, you know, they're a wonderful family. Um, I'll just jump in here. The Consgards, John Consgard is a fantastic winemaker, and Andy's going to tell you more about that in a minute. But his, uh, his father was a judge, a Napa Superior Court judge, and was known by the whole valley. Judge Consgard, he was the guy. And my parents became good friends with Judge Consgard and his wife. And so as I was growing up and going to back and forth to college, you know, we'd meet him on We'd get together with the families at Christmas and Fourth of July once in a while, that type of thing. But really, really cool family. He's got some couple great sisters and and uh, John's dynamite. But but uh, yeah, and he, there are there. Are, I think their heritage is Norwegian. He's he's kind of like the biggest man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I mean. He's a he's a towering guy, but he's yes. just such a classic man. I mean, you know, he's. I know him now through the Chamber Music Society. You know, he's very into classical music, and mm-hmm. he got me and Annie into classical music. But, um, you know, he, yeah, he's he's towering, but he wears his bow tie, and he's always smiling, and he's just yes. a great guy. But um, so back then I showed up, and I just instantly just sort of fell for this whole philosophy and, and style of winemaking. John back then had really pioneered this style of Chardonnay that he's known for. But not only that, he was just very tapped into the vineyards and, you know, native fermentations and just doing things very naturally and being connected to the land. And the place up there, Newton Vineyard, is just stunning, too. I mean, it's it's owned by LVMH now, and they're about to do a big renovation, which is due. But, you know, these incredible terraced vineyards, and it's up above St. Helena on Spring Mountain. So I just I fell in love with the whole idea. And here I am about to, you know, I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. It's a job to work in the cave basically making like $11 an hour. And it was so funny because this was just after Thanksgiving. I was living up on Atlas Peak on this little sort of granny unit on somebody's property with no insulation and a wood burning stove. And my mom came to visit and we're there. uh, And I'm explaining to her about how great it would be to work at this place and learn from this guy. And I had been waiting to hear back for a couple of weeks and I was really nervous. And my mom is like, what the hell are you doing with your life? And it was this great moment because, you know, a couple of weeks later I got the job and I'm working for John and, you know, it was just great. We were making wines in a pretty, pretty low tech way, you know, I mean, with all the tools you need, but we were racking the wines every quarter, no fining, no filtration, right. the wines, the white wines are these big, bold, you know, unfiltered Chardonnays and, it was just fun and then just you know we'd have lunch together with the crew it was just me and one other guy in the cellar and then we had two assistant winemakers from new zealand who are still good friends um i was actually able to go visit them both last year which was really fun um and john and we just you know we'd have wine with lunch and we'd you know talk about viticulture and winemaking i just i was super lucky to have that early in my career that connection so that well and you that solidified the- that yeah, and and you were there right when because John and Newton, his whole unfiltered Chardonnay was um, incredibly revolutionary at that time. No one was doing anything like that, and he did it, and it came out, and it just was um, the wine was just adored by everyone. It was so cool, and so he he became you know the the he became pretty famous really fast. The Newton unfiltered Chardonnay was the wine he had to have, and. And you're sitting there in the cellar doing it right when that's happening. That must have been kind of cool. Oh, it was very cool. 
And it was fun too because, you know, he would make us taste every single barrel before we racked the blends together. And, you know, sometimes I would come across a barrel and I think, wow, that's kind of funky. And I'd go to John and say, hey, you need to come and taste this barrel. And sure enough, it was pretty funky. And he said, you know what? It's going to add to the wine. Just put it in there. And so we would, <laughs> you know, it's just a different kind of, uh, philosophy that when you put it all back together again it creates this really complex experience for whoever's having the wine it was it was a pretty cool way to to uh come into the industry so yeah great start did that great start. did that for about a year unfortunately it was only a year and john announced right at the end of my year that he was leaving okay um but that's not why i left i i ended up and this is kind of a it's kind of a funny little uh detour but so somehow someone had uh, gotten word to a guy named Alain Fouquet. Do you, you know Alain Fouquet? He, yes, yes. He was the master cooper at Sagan Moreau, which is a very successful French cooperage, you know, barrel company uh, in Cognac. And Alain had come over here, I think in the late 70s or early 80s. He was his second or third generation master cooper. No no English really, but they sent him over here to see what was going on in California, right? And he ended up building this incredible business. And anyway, he found out that I had been in South America and he had this idea that he wanted to start a cooperage in Chile. So he, through some people, got in touch with me and we ended up talking about this idea that I'd come and start working for him. And then in a year, I would go down to Chile and help him start this small cooperage. And I was like, wow, that sounds pretty fun. you know have a good sense of adventure. And so I, I signed up for that and, um, you'll probably remember this, but not my experience, but you'll remember that Elan had a stroke. Um, or maybe you don't know, but I I, so I started I working for him in about 1996, I think. And, uh, so we had, I had this plan. I was going to work, you know, in the cooperage, in the office, learn everything, and then, you know, go down South and do something cool. And then, a few months into it, he ended up having a stroke. So the oh. French French flew over, put everything on hold, and uh, I became, you know, they were like, oh, you have some marketing experience. You should be the guy that goes and promotes the barrels. So I had this job all of a sudden of, my job was to go anywhere except Napa Valley and find out what people were doing with with wine barrels. So I was So you were selling in, so you went from working in the cellar at Newton to selling barrels, marketing barrels. Yeah. And the funny thing is at that point they were all quote unquote sold out. So I was my job was to show up and meet with the winemaker and taste the wines and just sort of talk about what they were doing and then we would expect an allocation later. Elam was awesome. He said, look, the best thing is to do is never ask for the sale. Just go out there and start a relationship. And so you know, it was great. I was in Russian River. I was going down to the Central Coast. I even went to Texas and upstate New York, and I went to South America. And I, but you couldn't go. Why you couldn't know. you? Why couldn't you go to Napa? Well, they had somebody in Napa. Uh, I mean, we did a bunch of things in Napa together. But um, anyway, it was a great experience because my job was I was a full time taster. You know, of, of young wines, I would be tasting wines out of barrel with people and talk to them about it, and pretty well, interesting. But. And I plus, did that for buddy. Yeah, and plus I'm interrupting, but plus you knew enough after working for a year or so with Consgard of how to make wine. So every winemaker you're talking to, you're getting different takes on how they do this or how they do that. I mean, that would be pretty cool. I mean, it uh, was pretty cool. Ed, yeah, and then what uh, an education. 
So it was almost two years I did that. And uh, in the meantime, I met Annie, who's now my wife of... uh, Yeah. We just celebrated 22 years. So that's pretty cool. Congratulations. And I know Annie well, but I don't know how you two met. So what's that story? Well, it's it's pretty funny because when I went up for my interview uh, at Newton Vineyard, all the young guys I knew were like, hey, there's this really cute young blonde girl who works up there. You know, you need to check that out. So I, <laughs> I went up there and there was no cute blonde girl that I saw, but I ended up, you know, really loving what was going on and taking the job anyway. But uh, apparently Annie had worked there for a couple of years and uh, she had left to go do some other things. But so I missed her by just a few months. But um, anyway, a couple <laughs> years later, we met at a at someone's barbecue in St. Helena we met. So uh, that's just sort of how it was. And it, right. uh, apparently it was mutual because that was almost exactly 25 years ago. So uh, wow. yeah, pretty cool. So, so it was about 1997, 98. I've been doing this, this barrel thing for a while. And, right. you know, I was with now with Annie who we were getting kind of serious and we were trying to figure out what our next move was. She was getting very into viticulture. So she came back to Napa and started working for Kathy Corison. So that was a really great mm-hmm. uh, place for her to land because she really connected with Kathy and she worked a couple of harvests for Kathy, but really fell in love with the vineyard. I mean, loved being outside in the open air and with the vines. I mean, if you know Annie, she's a the ultimate green thumb. I mean, yes. she's growing everything on our property. It's pretty awesome. Uh, but back then we, we came up with this idea that we would take turns going back to school and uh, she would study viticulture and I would study enology. And, and so that's what we did. So I applied to UC Davis and um, she went back and took the uh, viticulture program at Napa Valley college with, with uh, Steve Krebs, which was a great program. And they, they still keep in touch. I mean, Steve said that she's the only person that ever got like a hundred percent on everything because she just loves it. (laughs) And uh, so I went back to Davis. So I, I started in 98. I went back to UC Davis to get a master's degree, and I was um, just very lucky to do that. I just sort of got to the point where I knew that I needed to go back to school. You know, I couldn't go from my from the cellar to a barrel job and then into some winemaking position. There was just a lot of things I didn't know. So I went back to school and, and uh, studied. I was in Roger Bolton's lab, so okay. we did uh, studying phenolics and wine color and tannin and how they interact and all that and it was pretty interesting stuff and it was cool because I you know I grew up with a lab nerd as a dad and so you know that's true yeah totally into the lab stuff and even got to do my uh my research uh, at the Oakville research station which nobody in Davis seemed to even know about and this is a a little lab right in the middle of the Tokalon vineyard looking out at the monastery and it's part of UC Davis. So I did that and I worked a harvest at Spotswood 1999. It was the first year they uh, had the new winery and Rosemary oh, you worked, Bread was oh, the winery. You work, oh, you work with Rosemary. That's great. Yeah. So uh, that was cool because it was brand new winery and uh, Rosemary is very meticulous and organized. And so it was a pretty cool way to come back into it. You know, John's this very free thinking you know, philosopher type winemaker and Mary, uh, Rosemary's very, very rigid and very, uh, scientific. So that right. was kind of right. cool. She's very science. And, and what you don't know is Rosemary and I were in viticulture classes together at UC Davis back a million years ago. That's so cool. 
it just yeah. goes on and on. Um, all right. So, um, so you went back, so, got your master's, what, a year, year and a half or two? So finished in 2000. And uh, it's pretty funny because <laughs> Annie, Annie would say, you know, we never moved away from Napa. So I was commuting up to Davis. Right. I treated it like a job. You know, I'd go there in the morning and spend all day and come back at night. And then I'd, you know, I'd go down in the basement on the computer writing my thesis. And she would say, like, I didn't even know what the hell you were doing down there. And then all of a sudden you... You emerge one day with like a 150-page document. <laughs> so I did that. I got that done. And meanwhile, it's funny. I was, I was uh, bef- before all this, like in the, you know, when I first arrived in Napa, I somehow ended up in this tasting group with a bunch of older, more experienced winemakers. And that was really cool because about once a month, we'd get together and taste wines from all over the world. And uh, um, I'm forgetting some of the names of the guys that were in it, but um Bob Levy was in it, and okay. uh, he was a great guy to get to know. And at that point, he said, oh, you're going back to school. You should call me when you're done because we're working on this new winery project, and uh, we might need some help. So 2000, I called Bob, and I said, hey, remember when uh, you said to call you? Well, I'm done. And uh, they were just uh, – and I didn't even know anything really about Harlan Estate. I mean, right. it's kind of an – understatement but uh they were just working on harlan estate and uh bob told me to where to meet him in oakville and i went up there and they were they were building this winery up in the hills and it's now the bond winery but anyway i met with bob and he said yeah i need somebody to come on board so i ended up coming on board as bob's assistant uh winemaker up there right 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 the beginning wow yeah well beginning but it wasn't the beginning right so i just got out of Davis, but I had some experience and I had known sure. Bob from tasting wines. And so went up there and, you know, the, the, we were calling it back then the West winery, which is now the bond winery and right. we were making all the wines there and it was, you know, it was under construction. So, uh, it wasn't fancy by any means, but right. we, we had all the equipment we needed. The other, the other winery was under construction. So I wasn't really much involved with that, but I was, you know, it was Bob and me and a couple other guys, and we were just making the wines up there. And, uh, you know, Bob's talk about meticulous and yeah. connected to what he's doing. I mean, Bob is Mr. Precision. I mean, that was something to uh, fall into. And so worked with him. And, uh, you know, it was not even a year when it was pretty clear that um, it wasn't for me, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I... Uh, it was kind of lonely up there because there weren't a lot of other people up there. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be taking Bob's job. Right. But uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, but I ended up, so Annie, well, rewind a little bit. Annie, in the meantime, had gone from working for Kathy to going back to school to then uh, working for David Abreu. So Kathy at that point had been uh, buying fruit from David and... Right. Annie tasted the Cabernet Franc that had showed up on the crush pad one day and said, oh, my God, where is this from? This is incredible. And Kathy said, oh, it's from this guy, David Abreu's Vineyard. And David showed up one day at Kathy's winery. This is back when David would actually deliver the grapes, you know what I mean? So he pulled up in the truck one day and he and Annie started talking and they hit it off. And she ended up working for him for 12 years as his his viticulturist. But so 2000, I'm, I'm working at Harlan. Uh, 
Annie's working for David. There's a lot of new vineyards being planted and mm-hmm. things being developed. And and uh, the Staglin family was looking for somebody to come on board and be their winemaker. Um, they had been, you know, custom crushing for years at Napa Wine Company, and they had a new winery that they were about to start. Right, they had and, already started. And, and David grew. The, David took care and of the grapes. David and Andy the grapes. Did. Yeah. Okay. And Annie was involved. So I went and talked to them and ended up becoming their winemaker in 2001. So that was uh, pretty amazing. Um, they, I would say they, they took a chance on me because I, you know, I wasn't young, you know, I mean, I was, I guess, close to 30 or by this point or somewhere around 30, but um, they took a chance and I came on board and helped them finish the winery and, you know, 2001 and 2002 vintages we made in the new winery and just pretty great experience. I mean, oh, yeah. they're, they're such good people. They're too. great. I mean, they're, and and their, their wines were, you know, dynamite right out of the gate. So nice job winemaker. Ah, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was just, they gave me all the tools I needed. We had, I mean, David taking care of the vineyard, the vineyard's got great pedigree anyway, you know, it's got the old BV heritage and, and so, uh, did that for two vintages, uh, 2001 and 2002. And they're such great people. I mean, they're still like family, you know, we see them and, and Shannon actually, Shannon Staglin, who now runs the winery. She was just out of college 2002. She was my harvest intern, (laughs) which is so funny. And I joke that, uh, I'm the reason that she went back to business school because (laughs) she came in and I, basically warned her like as long as you know this is mostly just cleaning things and moving liquid around and yeah. she was like oh yeah that's fine and um you know being a harvest intern in a brand new winery it was a lot of work we had fun I, together i think i had we had uh the two of them sherry and shannon in here on the podcast and i think i remember her talking about that i think she said something oh, that's i think funny. she made the comment about yeah i realized seller the seller angle wasn't the way for me i wanted to go with the business marketing side so i think she i think i remember that Dude. Yeah, it's great. And we're still close and uh, with, with the whole family. But in those two years, you know, Annie and I had two kids. And that's when, oh, you, wow. that's when you start thinking, okay, what are we really doing here? Yeah. And, uh, you know, also there were all these really cool new projects happening. I mean, th- those years, um, really from the late 90s through the whole 2000s there were so many new wineries coming into the valley new people planting vineyards and Mm -hmm. starting small wineries and i was starting to get phone calls from people and hey we're looking for a consulting winemaker and so you know after many discussions with the staglins you know we pretty much decided that you know if i was going to do that i was going to do that if i was going to stay with them i was going to stay with them so took a leap and and started we started our own winery, uh, our own wine label then, Favia. Favia. And is... also I started consulting. So I took on a few things. And, okay. And yeah, never looked back. And uh, it's been a pretty crazy ride in a, in a good way. It's been a lot of fun. So you've been, so at that point you became, well, you, you've got your own brand and then you're consulting for others. So, so who were some of your uh, first clients? Well, the first one that really kind of made me say yes was uh, Ovid. So way up on Pritchard Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going up there a couple years before I met the owners and they were talking about building a winery. But so David Abreu 
develop this vineyard. So this is way up on the top of the plateau up there where you have Colgan and now Continuum and Ovid. And, and these were all brand new developments up there. But I remember going up when Annie was developing the vineyard and it was it was incredible. I mean, it's it was like Mars. I mean, this red dust and right. giant rocks and machinery just working this thing. And anyway, a couple years later, um, I met uh, Mark Nelson and Dana Johnson, who are the proprietors or were the proprietors back then and through the cons guards actually, which is funny. So wow. they're, they're big classical music people and they were involved in the chamber music, uh, in Napa. And we started talking and I drove up there. And at this point the vineyard was just, uh, you know, two buds to the ground, right. brand new, never produced anything. And, and I remember driving up there thinking, Oh my gosh, I got to do this. This is going to be incredible. And so, <laughs> just signed up and uh, that was my first consulting project. So you talk about people taking a chance. I mean, here I am. I was just the winemaker at Stagen for two years right? and uh, come on board. And so that, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I was there for 15 years. We, we built wow. the winery. We I, did, did, I didn't know you there for 15 years. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, it changed hands. It sold to the Duncan family, right. another great family um, stayed on a short time, but then it was, you know, clear to just, let them take it and run with it. Sure. Um, but yeah, 15 years from basically dirt to what you see now, which are fantastic wines, great wines and great place, beautiful. And so that was one. And then, um, Arietta wines. So this is another, uh, kind of full circle thing. So Arietta, um, when I was at Newton, uh, we had 1800 barrels of red wine in the cellar at Newton. And we would rack all the barrels once a quarter. So that meant like oh. one out of every three months, I was yeah. just down in the cave, like racking barrel to barrel. Right. And uh, there were, of all those, there were five barrels of wine that I just thought, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> and uh, it turned out it was the Cabernet Franc from Hudson Vineyards, which is now uh, the H block, Hudson Vineyards, Arietta red wine. So when John left Newton, that's the one thing he said he wanted to go with him was that Cabernet Franc. And so that's how he started Arietta. Okay. Back in 1996. So fast forward to 2004 and John uh, was going to build his winery and he and Fritz Hatton were partners in Arietta. So he was going to buy out Fritz and they wanted a new winemaker. So they asked me and I said, yes, I'm not stupid. So I took that yeah. over in 2004 and then a new winery called Dancing Hairs Vineyard, which... It's up in St. Helena, a little project that Abreu was also doing. I also uh, consulted for Hartwell Vineyards okay. for for a few years uh, in, in Stag's Leap. And then uh, was introduced to, uh, it's pretty funny, a viticultural consultant kept telling me, oh, there's these guys in Santa Barbara that are doing something. You should, uh, you should meet with them. And I said, well, there's a lot of great things happening in Napa. I think I'd, I'm pretty busy here. But right. They would say, no, no, you got to meet these guys. So I finally went down there, saw what they were doing. It was uh, Charles Banks and some partners, including Stan Kroenke, who now owns Screamy Eagle. But um, went down there, just sort of saw that these guys are really serious about what they were doing. Uh, and it's still, a, it's a great property, Honada. Honada, uh, Stan, yeah. Stan owns the property now outright. But um, decided to help them out. We, we put a team together and I consulted for them and it was pretty so, crazy because uh, go ahead 
It sounds like, Andy, I got to interrupt. So it sounds like you're consulting with like, at the most, how many different wineries at the same time, you think? Four, uh, five, six? Time? Yeah. At that time, pretty quickly, it was four. Okay. All right. So it's not as much. And all pretty small. Okay. And so I made a decision early on that I, and this was, has created some interesting side <laughs> notes in my life is that I wanted people who are committed to having an estate winery and an estate vineyard. And so a lot of these places have their own, well, everybody except for Arietta has their own winery and vineyard. So it's a lot of things to juggle, but I, you know, it's not like I want to be making 20 different wines. That would be really difficult. Yeah. So, well, um, if you're consulting with four or five different properties and, you know, you're working with me and then you're also working with Jim down the road, you know, are you giving me this good as advice as you're giving Jim or, you know, does he get in a better deal? I mean, is there jealousy? Someone's getting the higher scores than I am, that type of thing. I mean, you ever run into that? Well, I think, uh, luckily not really. I mean, good. and especially because these are all estate properties, right? So everyone has their own story. Everyone has their own vision of what they want to do. Everyone has their own commitment. I mean, I'm not going to prioritize one, client over the other. I mean, we're all committed to making, you know, the best wine we can, which is a year round endeavor, right? I mean, we're out there talking about the pruning. We're out there talking about the drainage and the soils. We're out there talking about whether we need to graft over this block because it's never made the blend. We're, We're, you know, at every step, the thinning, the irrigation, the harvest, the fermentations, the blending. I mean, it's true. We're, uh, we're yeah, trying to make sure we're making the same, the right decisions every single time. And uh, depending and on the does, location. Yeah, I'm interrupting because I'm just thinking about what we do here. It's like, you know, let's say we're both making wines, but your place is over there and my place is over here. What's well, it's just it's two different sets of uh, ingredients and and situations. So it's different from the get go. Uh, you you maximize what each place does. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's what right. You're doing. Yeah. And, um, okay. You know, if if your neighbor has great Merlot, for example, that doesn't mean that you're going to grow great Merlot. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can learn a lot by what your neighbors are doing, but I don't think that uh, I don't think there are many secrets out there. There's not a secret formula. You know, that's when you have conversations with with people early on, and you might think you're going to work together. It it's pretty easy when you get into the conversations that it's more about a commitment than it is about any secret formula. Right. I mean, it's, well, I think, I think we all think we have secrets, but they're the same ones. We just haven't told each <laughs> yeah, other. Exactly <laughs> right. So when we go That's out and have totally dinner, right. we have two or three bottles of wine, we can share our secrets and they'll be the same thing probably. Yeah. That's um, the fun part about <laughs> harvest is as soon as the fruit starts coming in, everybody goes on blackout, right? You can't yeah. get anybody on the phone. Cause yeah. And it's not like we're hiding secrets. It's just like, I got my thing going on. You yeah. got your thing going on. Yeah, we're all. But yeah, the rest of the year, you, you we share ideas, and it's a it's a great community, as you know. It's fun. So tell me about um, being a consulting winemaker, because most of the consultants that you work with, do they have like a quote winemaker on site doing the day to day? Is that how that works? Well, it kind of depends on the size of the winery and the okay. situation. I mean, and and you know, a lot of the clients I've been with for many years, so. Like, for example, at Dalla Valley Vineyards, when I started there back in 
2007, it was really just me and my assistant sort of doing everything. But now, you know, it's been, this is my 14th vintage with them and Maya's come back and she's taken over the winery. And so I'm more in and out of there. Uh, But a bigger winery, you know, uh, we would have an on-site winemaker and, uh, you know, I'm more of a consultant. If it's a startup thing, it's more of a deep dive, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, once you get things going, it's it, it sort of becomes a well-oiled machine, right? If you have things in place. Right. Um, so I'd say the relationship is is different, but I'm involved in all the aspects of what's going on. So it's it's really fun. And it's 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 funny because, you know, I've always dreamed of having my own winery and, and now we do. Um, and it's great. Uh, we have, we bought the old, it's called the Antonio Carboni Winery and Italian Gardens back from the 1880s. It's a really cool piece of history in Coombsville. Um, and so we have our Favia wines here. We live here, make the wines here. And so in the back of my mind, I always thought, oh, I'll start to scale back on the consulting stuff. But the fact is there's, there's so many cool things happening in the Valley and I, you know, I love being a part of it and I, I have fun with it. So well, it keeps you going. It keeps the juices going. Yeah, it does. And you, you, you get to see a lot of different things and work with different people. And it just it, it makes it very rewarding. It's 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 pretty cool. And I I'm, I'm with you. And I got to ask you because you I think I interrupted your train of thought. You were talking about uh, Santa Barbara and Honada working with those guys. And that led to something else up here, I think. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the crazy thing was back then the conversation was, well, if it works out, maybe we'll do something in Napa someday. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, great. And so, you know, I was once a month going down to Santa Barbara and things were going well. And so that started in 2004. So I guess it didn't take long. I mean, it seemed like a long time at the time, but, it, you know, about 18 months later, I get a phone call from Charles saying, Hey, I need you to look at some numbers. Cause, uh, you know, maybe we'll buy Screamy Eagle. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, and just, you know, you can't look at the numbers on something like that. It just no. doesn't really tell a story. So I just said, you know, this doesn't make any sense, but that would be great. <laughs> so, um, As long as he's cutting the check, not you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I literally get a phone call. I think it was March of 2006. I get a phone call saying, hey, we closed escrow last night. It's incredible. I got the keys. We bought Screamy Eagle. And I just thought, oh, my God, what? (laughs) And I was on the Silverado Trail. I just turned around my car, drove straight there. I had never been on the property before. So um, drove in. It's kind of a surreal moment. I'm there. It was me and Annie, uh, Charles, Stan, David Abreu showed up. Why not? (laughs) And uh, we got a thief out and we started tasting some barrels and walking through the vineyard and you just went and right I, at, you went right after it right away. I got I love that. Well, I mean, <laughs> but I tell you at the time I said, "Look, you guys are crazy. You can't change anything here. You got to you got to keep Heidi. You got to you got to keep everything the same. There's just too much mojo." Right. And uh and they said, "No, we want you to do it." And I just thought, "Oh my god, this is this is going to kill me." I mean, it was <laughs> it was pretty daunting. But yeah, I stepped in there in the spring of 2006 and we we started doing it i mean what an incredible place uh, most people think of it as a brand right but it's 
it's this little hidden gem of a vineyard that people drive by every day and yep. don't realize it's there. It's beautiful. I drive by right it twice that, a day. Yeah. Right in that sweet spot in Oakville. And, you know, it was the vineyard. A lot of it had to be replanted and um, we had to keep the wine going. But it was a really cool project. I mean, we, we brought in we brought in a viticultural consultant and and we must have dug 75 soil pits with Bob Gallagher from Crop Care. I don't know if you work with Bob, but he's I do, awesome. and I, I actually do remember seeing those pits being dug. It's like every day it's like, what are they doing out there? Oh, and, and Jean, so Jean Phillips right. was the uh, original owner, and she had thought that there was this one little hillside that produced the best wines and, you know, the rest of it she was selling the grapes. So we dug all these soil pits and did all this analysis. And Bob Gallagher said, I think this is the first time in my career where I, where I could pretty much recommend not doing anything to <laughs> wow. most of the vineyard. And wow. it turns out that most of that property is A to A plus. And so it was just really fun to, to help build a proper winery. There was never really a proper winery there. Right. Um, replanting the vineyards and just sort of putting it on a footing as like a first growth estate sort of a thing rather than just a a brand. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. You know, no one ever visits there. So it wasn't like there was any spotlight in that way. I mean, we were just there quietly doing our thing and great crew. The whole crew's still there. Um, Nick Gislason, who I hired straight out of Davis to be my assistant. He's still there as a winemaker. It's great. I have a great relationship with them, but, um, you know, the partnership fell apart and I decided to do something else and it led me to some other things, which is great. I'm, um, it led me to Mayakamas, which. Yeah. What happened with, I remember that. What happened with Mayakamas? Great property up on, uh, it's an incredible property. And, uh, so even, when uh, Charles was still involved in Scream Eagle, Bob Travers was, you know, thinking of selling. He was getting older and um, the winery and vineyards really needed a redo up at Mayakamas. And so the conversation started with, with Bob Travers and it was sort of on again, off again. He had some things going on in his life. His wife passed away and some other things. So it sort of went quiet for a while. But um I would be the guy to go up there and go through the vineyards with Bob and talk to Bob and taste the wines. And, you know, eventually that came together and, and that is such a great iconic historic Napa property. And it's been an incredible thing to be a part of. I mean, this is, you know, a winery from the 1890s and I'm sorry, 1880s, 1889. And, it's got such an incredible history, and, it be, and it's also way on the top of Mount Veter. I mean, the guy that showed up there and thought, "Oh, I'll just plant a vineyard here." I mean, here, yeah, back in yeah. The- he was Swiss, so apparently the Swiss, you know, driving up to twenty five hundred <laughs> feet through the woods is no big deal for a Swiss person. <laughs> but uh, you know, all the vineyards up there, even though it's hundreds of acres of property, there's only about fifty acres planted, and they're all. Great soils faith, facing south and southwest, which is what you want up there. So, you know, they've always done it right. And so just... How fun to be a part of that. That's really neat. It's great. And it's also a style of wine that is different from what a lot of people are doing in Napa, and mm-hmm. a lot, especially the past 
15, 20 years, including myself. And so it's been fun to to just say we're not going to change the style. We're just going to improve on it. And, you know, the wines are pretty rugged. You know, they're tannic, they're big, yes. and they age a long time. And so we've kept that style. So that's been really fun. And it's just, it feels good to to sort of polish the old gem up there. I like it. I like it. You are you are you are a Renaissance man, my friend. And now, under the category of the hits keep coming, it's 2015. You get a call from Constellation, who owns Robert Mondavi. What was that call all about? Oh yeah, that and that was completely <laughs> unexpected. And uh, so yeah, that that's a good segue because I'm I'm sort of a Napa history buff. I mean, I was think about how incredible it would be to be around Napa in the 1890s. I mean, yeah. when you think of some of the things that were happening back then, I mean, Greystone and what's now Farniente and Mayacamas and even our little winery and a lot of Beringer wineries and yeah. Krug and all these cool properties. Um, you know, and then it went all went to nothing with prohibition. But mm -hmm. back in the 1870s through the early 1900s, Tokalon Vineyard was was renowned all over the country as being you know, some of the best wines in California. So everyone knows the recent history and, and how great those wines are, you know, and a lot of thanks go to Andy Beckstoff for really, for really uh, doing a great job and having small producers in there making great wines. But the vineyard itself, which is, you know, close to 500 acres, right. uh, most of that's owned by Constellation uh, through Mondavi. And, uh, they called me and thank God I returned the phone call. I, I actually, <laughs> I didn't at first. And someone called back and said, Hey, come on, let's just talk. So I, it was, it only took about two minutes for me to say yes, because their, their concept was we want to take the Tokalon vineyard and we want to elevate it to its own status and make a, you know, a, a small production, very high end wine from Tokalon and, and revive the old, imagery and ephemera and stories from the 1890s. And I just, I love that stuff. So yeah. I was all over it. Yeah. So it's been incredible. Basically have free reign in the vineyard. Uh, so this started in, in 2016 was the first vintage. Okay. So really just taking the vineyard map and uh, tasting all the wines that Jean Viev had made the year before. So Jean Viev is the winemaker from Mandavi. Yes. Has been there for years. And, uh, you know, it's a big vineyard. So I just had all these glasses of wine, tasting the wine, saying, oh, where's this from? And I'd circle it on the map. And then where's this from? And I'd, and then going around and touring around. And Man, how come you get to do this stuff? Picking out these blocks. You, would, would you call me up next time you do that so I can just kind of hang out? Let's do it. Let's yeah. go for it. Well, we got to wait for a while, but let's go yeah. for a drive. Through the vineyard. <laughs> but yeah, when we started talking about this project, I just thought, oh my God, this is great. So yeah, the idea is, so the, the original property back in the day was the uh, Tokalon Vineyard Company and, uh, and then the Tokalon Wine Company. And there was actually a big winery on the property of Tokalon that unfortunately, like a lot of things in Napa, it burned down um, back in, I think, 1915 or something like that and but before that they had their own wine shops all over the country they had tokalon wine shops in dc and new orleans and chicago huh. and and the branding and the this just the look and feel of all the old labels and everything it's so cool yeah i did so know that. we've we've revived that and um 
And we started with just one wine, and now we're going to have, with the 18 vintage, three different wines. And I've got them uh, planting more Cabernet Franc for me. That's my passion is Cabernet Franc. So we're going to be producing a wine that's got a bunch of Cabernet Franc in it. Okay. So, yeah, that's been a, that's been a good one. That's fun. So, and then but coming back to the, the home ranch, you and Annie, what are you guys, uh, um, so you got the Fabia brand, uh, you've got Le- Leviathan and Room. Tell me about those wines. So Leviathan uh, started as a second wine to the Fabia wines. Uh, and the Fabia wines, as I said before, we love Cabernet Franc. Right. And it's, it's funny when Annie worked for David Abreu, uh, so back in the late 90s, David had four rows of these Cabernet Franc vines in his vineyard at Madrona, and it was propagated from cuttings he had brought back from Bordeaux over the years, which is <laughs> pretty cool. And uh, he said, oh, you guys should make this wine in your garage. So we we made the wine in our garage in 1998, <laughs> 99, 2000. I still have a few bottles of this, but we, um, we picked the clone that we liked the best, and we created a block there at Madrona. We made the wine there for a few years. Um, we make, so we have two different Cabernet Franc based wines and then we make two Cabernet Sauvignons. We have a Coombsville cab and an Oakville cab. Okay. And we've been down here in Coombsville for 15 years now, even before it had a name. So um, it's great now that it has an Appalachian name. Everybody thinks it's new and wants to know about it, but <laughs> we've been here for a while. Um, Leviathan, we spun off and, uh, I actually partner with uh, Huneus now. I sold them the brand, and I'm helping them keep that going. So that's a okay. That's a blended wine, and that's got its own life going now. And then Room is an interesting project that we started, which is really experimental wines that are not what we do for Favia. So we've done Riesling from the Marin Coast. We've done an orange wine. We've done you know Grenache Rosé. We've done all sorts of different wines, and it's just kind of a fun thing. They're all one-offs. Yeah, and then fun. we created a yeah, it is fun. And then we created a uh, a brand called Carboni, so so named after the family that built the winery that's now ours. They built it back in the 1880s. So that's now we make a Coombsville Chardonnay from the vines right here behind the winery, and then a, a red wine, which is now our second wine to Favia. So that's that's been pretty fun and great to revive the old name too in the history what a lineup and then on top of that you've got a, uh you and annie you've got a new project you're making tea or it's that yeah I, baby? I can't i can't take much credit for that except being the guy who like fixes irrigation leaks and uh you know rototills <laughs> once in a while but yeah annie as i said has probably the greenest thumb that i've ever known and she uh she's always loved tea and we tried for years actually to grow uh, Camellia sinensis. That's the uh, the actual tea plant that makes all green tea, huh. black tea, oolong tea. But it just doesn't grow in Napa. I think it's too dry. Yeah. So she created an herbal tea business. So we're growing all these organic herbs on the property. And we have a, a drying room in the barn. And, and it's just awesome stuff. So fresh organic herbs. We have lemon verbena chamomile mint uh shiso she does all these different blends we have a greek mountain tea which is a really interesting tea that tastes just like green tea but has no caffeine and this is something that annie has always loved and we're we're doing it it's that's a great business. We're, she's we're, got a website she's yeah. selling it what's um, the website 
how, how can people get it's, a hold of that? So erdat.com, E-R-D-A. Erda is the first known word for Mother Earth. There you go. And uh, pretty cool concept. And it's all grown right here on the property, and they're delicious. Good. So that's the tea. Now, how do folks find your wines? Because they need, because, you know, Favia wines are gorgeous. That's what we drink at my house. How, they, how can so, people buy them? Pretty easy. It's faviawines.com. And uh, yeah, you can sign up on the list or with what's going on now, we actually have some wine available on the website. Um, and then normally take visitors at the winery as well, Monday through Friday. Are you open to visitors now or are you holding off for a while? Not yet. We're holding off for a little while, but okay. um, at some point we will. Good, good. All right, man. Um, you are a sweetheart for taking so much time today. Thanks so much. And man, it was finally good to hear your story. And I and you know, good old Hinsdale. We got something. Uh, in it common. was great to, to <laughs> hear the connections. I mean, like I said, almost zero degrees of separation. Right. I love it's, it. It's great. All right, man. You Thank take you. care. Say hi to Andy. Give her a hug, and I will see you around. Absolutely. All see right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Andy. Bye, bye. What an unbelievable story, from learning to prune vines in South America to making wines for some of the best wineries in Napa Valley, and on top of that, one of the nicest, most down-to-earth guys you can meet. If you can, do yourself a favor and track down some of the wines he makes with his wife, Annie. They make wines under the Favia, Carbone, and Rum brands. Thanks again for joining us here on The Taste. If you have any thoughts on how we're doing or ideas for future guests, please send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. And if you want to help us grow the audience for the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Take care and we'll see you next time.